0: This morning, we're going to talk about a topic that's somewhat uncomfortable for lots of people. So I thought I'd start by just showing us, reminding us of why the topic is important. Suppose that I had a magic red button up here on the platform. Magic red button. And here's what would happen. If you were to come up and press that red button, you would get a financial do-over. Wouldn't you like that? You'd press the button, all of your debts would disappear. Boom, magical. All of those crazy expenditures that you bought something impulsively and now you regret, press the button, all of that money comes back into your savings or checking account all of those things you bought on a whim, all those get-rich-quick schemes that you participated in and now you regret, all of your financial regrets, all of the financial things you would like to do-over. After the service, we got a magic button. If you were to come up and press the button, you would get a financial do-over. Here's my question. If I had such a magic button, how long would the line be to press the button? It would be the longest line of, of an altar call that Calvary Church has ever... It would probably go past Wawa or it'd go out to 309 if you're in Quakertown. Every one of us would be in that line to press that button. Well, I've got some good news and bad news. The bad news is I don't have a magic button. The good news is God has graciously given us some financial principles and even though I can't go back into your financial history and have you press the button and change all of your stupid... Allocations or expenditures, you can and I can begin to implement how God calls us to live financially from here on out, and our lives can be radically different. Now, I know that we cover a vast spectrum of financial wisdom in the room this morning. Some of you are very financially sophisticated and savvy and wise, and right about now you're sitting there arrogantly thinking, Charles. I know more about all this stuff than you do. What are you going to teach me? Not much, not much. Uh, I am going to share with you a few things God says. Others of you have no idea how to spell financial, and you've never added or subtracted numbers that add up to what the bank says in a lifetime. So we covered a gamut. But just to level the playing field, let me uh, mention a few things when it comes to worry, when it, just to kind of see if we're all in the same boat. How many of you have ever worried if you're saving enough money. Don't raise your hand. A couple of people raise their hand. If you raise, if you raise your hand quickly, the sermon doesn't end quicker. It doesn't matter, all right? Uh, save your hand raising all the way till the end, right? Have you ever worried about saving? Is in, am I saving enough? Am I going to be okay? Have you ever worried about retirement? Have you put enough money away for retirement? Are you going to be able to retire before you're 109? Uh, have you figured that out? Are you worried about, um, have you ever worried about blowing your budget for a month? For a year? For a lifetime? You know, you're kind of living outside the budgetary lines. Have you ever worried about that? You ever worry about the financial lessons you're teaching or have taught your kids? Like they watched how you dealt with money all their growing up years. You ever worried about how you train them to handle their money? You ever worry about um, whether you're giving enough? You come to church and you're dreading sermons like this, right? Because you think I'm going to try to make you feel guilty by the end. I promise I won't. I'm I'm not doing that. But already you're feeling guilty, right? Because, oh, you know, I spend so much on myself. I worry, am I giving it up? You ever worry about that? You ever worry about the economy as a whole? About the stock market? Maybe not these past few weeks, but you ever worry about the stock market? Um, Now, rather than ask you to raise your hands, here's what I want you to do. Um, Every one of us I know live with, and have lived with financial pressures and stress. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and say this. This message is for me, but you can listen. Turn to the person next to you. This message is for me, but you can listen. All right, that's enough, that's enough. Now, I want you to turn to the person on the other side of you because they're feeling a little left out, and I want you to say to that person, this message is for me, but you need it more. You need, tell the person that. Yeah, some of you turned back to the first person and told them that after the second time, I know. Well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk through some basic financial principles. Biblical finance 101. And again, some of you are much further along in understanding biblical financial wisdom, but here's my guess. It's easy to forget. And we live in a culture that continually gives us radically different messages. So just going through life we're being exposed to thousands and thousands of messages that call us to live radically differently than the Bible calls us to live. So for some, it may be a reminder. For other people, this, must be the, this maybe will be the first run through some of this stuff. Often, Proverbs 31 is brought out to make women feel guilty. Isn't that right, ladies? Well, I'm going to bring out Proverbs 31 today. But my purpose is to make us all feel guilty, right? So let's not just look at it from the female perspective. Let's look at it from all of our perspective. Here's how Proverbs kind of ends the book. Financial wisdom. Listen to this. And wouldn't you like to be living financially like this? She provides food for her family and portions for her servants or employees. She considers a field and buys it. Out of earnings, she plants a vineyard. I mean, she's a vintner, right? She's making wine. She sees that her trading is profitable. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household because she goes to Florida or Arizona. (laughs) She's not back this morning. She'll be back tomorrow. Yeah. Um, Now, there's financial wisdom in there, right? Now, you don't get a lot of the hows and the what's in Proverbs 31, you get a lot of the results of living as a wise financial steward. So what we're going to do is walk through some of the principles that lead to this kind of destination. So hopefully you say, that's what I want. I want to be able to be a good money manager. I want to honor God with what he gives me by way of earnings. I want to be able to minister to people and give to poor, give to the poor and people in need. I want to be able to make a living and have income, but not to hoard it all for myself, to be able to share it and generously give. If that's the destination, we'll walk through some principles that may get us there. The first thing that we need is an attitude adjustment. You need an attitude adjustment. Now, we often need an attitude adjustment for life, period. But I know that when it comes to money, we need an attitude adjustment. Here's a verse from the New Testament that gives us the right attitude. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. It's all his stuff. He made it. It's his And he lends you a little bit of his stuff, not as an owner, but as a steward. And one day at the end, you get a final exam on how well you did with his stuff that he lent to you. That's the right attitude. Now, here's the point. You ever notice how generous people are with other people's stuff? You ever notice that? Like, for example, the free coffee at Calvary Church. You are all incredibly generous. Have you had a cup of coffee yet? Come right over here. I'll get you a cup of coffee. Hot chocolate. Take two. Take them into the service. Kick one over down the aisle. Doesn't matter. Drink the other one, right? Free coffee. Come over and get one. Uh, Sometimes we have staff people that say this. Oh, really? You need that book? Well, I don't have a... Charles has a copy of that book. Here, I'll go into Charles' office. I'll get you a copy of Charles' book. He won't mind you borrowing. Yes, I would mind if you burned about my book. Or how about this one? Tools from your neighbor's garage. I don't have that tool. Bob has that tool. We'll go across the drive. Bob, won't mind. Bob, you won't mind lending your lawnmower to this person, will you? You won't mind giving him your snowblower for three weeks, will you? I know in the summer I wouldn't. Uh, we're very generous with other people's stuff. That's the attitude. All of your stuff is really somebody else's stuff. All of our stuff is ultimately God's stuff. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, oh, wait just one minute. Charles, you don't understand. I worked hard and put myself through college. I studied hard and got a degree. I disciplined myself. When all my friends were goofing off, I got good grades. I got a good job. I worked long hours. I got promoted. Yeah, I earned it all myself. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rewind. Whose abilities did you use to earn all you've got? How about all the opportunities? You created all them? How about your health, your IQ, your skill set, your talents, your network of relationships? You earned all that? Regardless of how you want to cut it, it's all God's stuff. And some of you have done amazingly well with the stuff God's given you. But ultimately, even your time and your abilities and your talents and your skill set, it all comes from God. And if we were born in another part of the world or in another part through history, we would not have a fraction of what we have today. God's given us all of those opportunities. He's given us all that we have. And I don't care how far you want to roll back the clock, it's all his stuff. And one day you get a final exam on how you stewarded his stuff. Every time you get a paycheck, whether it's direct deposit or whether you get a, get a live check, every time you get earnings, it's an opportunity to recognize God's faithfulness and to exercise your trust in him. Every time we earn something, it's it's a reminder, God's loving and gracious, he's given me this. And it's an opportunity for us to trust him and then expend it the way he calls us to. It all starts with attitude. It's it's not jumping through hoops. It starts with attitude. That's the attitude of the gospel. That's the attitude of being humble recipients and having a gracious, loving, giving God rather than we being the center of everything and we're going to give God a little bit of what we've accumulated. We need an attitude adjustment. It all starts with Every good and perfect gift comes from a loving, gracious God. Well, the second thing you need to know, you need to know something about budget basics. And some of you think, oh, my goodness, Charles, I hate budgets." Just hang in there a minute, right? Some budget basics. Here's the basic budget you need to understand. It goes like this. Put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Let me read that again. Let it sink in. Put your outdoor work in order. And get your fields ready. After that, build your house. So does that mean I should shovel the snow and mow the lawn before I do home repairs? No. That verse means you should golf before you worry about stupid things around the house. That's what that verse means. That doesn't mean that either. Here's what it means. The Bible's context is very different than our context. That's what it means. The Bible was written in primarily an agrarian culture. Now, here's here, stay with me. You need to understand budget basics like this. Money flows to you and money flows from you. And some of you think, well, I wish more would flow to me. All right, hang it. Money flows to you and money flows from you. It's kind of like breathing, right? Some comes in, some goes out. Here's the point. If you lived in biblical times, your fields are where you grew crops Your fields produced crops, therefore your fields were income-producing. And if you took care of your fields first, money was flowing to you. Your home was a liability and still is a liability. Your home does not have money flowing to you. Your home has money flowing from you. So here's the principle. Income before expense. Take care of your fields, income-producing before you expend it, before you spend it. Now, since many of you don't practice that principle, we're going to say it together, all right? Income before expense, ready? Income before expense. That was really weak. That was, you guys have a problem. Attitude adjustment. We're going to have a peppy attitude, right? Let's try it again. Income before expense. That's how budget basics work, right? Money flows to you, money flows from you. Make sure you secure the money flowing to you before you send the money from you. Income before expense. And make sure the money flowing to you exceeds the money flowing from you. That's how it works. If you could divide the whole population of the world into two categories when it comes to money, you would have two categories, nerds and hippies nerds like numbers right they like to calculate they have the inner calculator on their phone they're working numbers right they like to plan they, they like to parcel out how things are going to be they like budgets they keep track of expenses they have quickbooks everywhere in their life right? everything's budgeted carefully they're nerds right then there are hippies hippies like go with the flow right they don't like numbers. They don't, they don't like much. They just like to do whatever they feel like doing, right? You just go with the flow. Let's go surfing. Let's just hang out. Don't worry about where the money's coming from. We'll worry about that later. In fact, we will never worry about it. We're just going to have a good time. Spontaneity is the thing. And here's another truth. Nerds always marry hippies. <laughs> Isn't that right? I'd be willing to bet if you're a nerd, you married a hippie. If you're a planner, you want to know where every penny met, you married somebody who likes to go with the flow, right? Um, well, here's the point, according to uh, Proverbs 24. Sometimes you have to geek it up. Sometimes you have to nerd it out. I mean, sometimes you got to figure out what's flowing to you in order to put, make sure the right amount is flowing from you. And I know some of you hippies don't like that, but hey, man, you got to get with the program, all right? And so you've got to nerd it out and geek it up because numbers matter. Let the nerds take over a little bit and don't go shopping where they're working with the numbers, all right? But there are also seasons in life when you need to kind of go with the flow a little bit, right? But do your nerd work before you goof off like a hippie, all right? That's kind of the point. Make sure you secure secure your income before you work on your expense. Make sure you nerd it up before you go with the flow. That's what the Bible says. See, budget isn't that hard. It's all about fields and all about houses and home repairs. You got it? Good. The next principle we need to uh, talk about is dealing with debt. And so I knew you were going to get here, Charles. I can't believe it. Um, okay, well, Americans have a debt problem. In fact, I went, I Googled yesterday the US debt calculator. Have go ever gone there? It'll make your head spin, right? I mean, we will soon, as a country, have over $20 trillion worth of debt. Now, here's how you can't count that high in your lifetime. I mean, that's more money than we can think of, right? We're in debt as a country, $20 trillion. Oh, yeah. And we're in debt individually, just credit card debt. The average household debt, credit card debt of an American family, American household, is over $16,000. That means many of us in this room have more than $16,000 of credit card debt, and some in this room have less. The average household credit card debt, is over $16,000. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And I know some of you may be sitting there, but Charles, you don't understand. I'm a sophisticated financier. You can leverage debt to the strategic growth curve of your corporation. I know that. I also know I teach the Bible. And I know the Bible doesn't have too much good to say about debt. I know you can leverage debt, but you better be able to extrapolate from that to make sure you can cover those payments and make sure it's working in your favor. And organizations, just like corporations, companies, and people have figured the wrong way and they're in trouble because they're spending more than they're taking in. Proverbs says it this way. The rich rule over the poor, the borrower is slave to the lender. That was not a metaphor when Proverbs was written. Not a metaphor. In biblical times, there was no chapter 7, 11, 12, or 13. No bankruptcy. So here's how it worked. If you were in debt and couldn't make your payments on the debt, your debtor would come and take you as a slave until you worked off the money you owed. If your debt was too big for you to work off as a slave, they took your spouse and your kids. And they were all put into slavery until they worked off the debt. It wasn't a metaphor in biblical times, it was reality in biblical times. The borrower is slave to the lender. That was real. But you know, in our world, it's still metaphorically true, isn't it? Some of you know the weight, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, and the lack of freedom that comes. From being in debt. You know what it's like to barely be able to make the minimum payments on your debts. Or maybe you can't make them. You see no way clear. It's like being in prison, right? I mean, the Bible gets it right. So we need to figure out how we're going to deal with debt. Part of the reason, excuse me, that we get into debt is because we put the wrong thing first. Here are two words that are mottos for our culture. More and now. It's kind of like a cheer, right? What do we want? More. When do we want it? Now. Right? You've heard that? It it works at a football game. What do we want? More. When do we want it? We want it now. Yeah, and the more now thing will get you in debt because what do you want? No more. When do you want it? I want it now. And then retailers have come up with this really cool thing. You can buy now and pay later. You all knew, right? You heard this, right? Buy now and pay later. But here's what they know. Here's what they know. Over 80% of the people will not pay when it comes due. 88% of those that buy now do not pay it off in full when it comes due. That's why they say buy now and pay later because they know you're really going to pay later and keep paying later. They're not stupid. They're not That's how what do we want more? What do we want? When do we want it? Now. You're going to buy now and keep paying later because then you're paying interest and you're paying principal and it just goes on and on. The mistake comes from Working on our lifestyle before we work on other priorities. What's the first question we ask? How do I want to live? What do I need? What do I deserve? Well, we make a long list of everything we deserve. We then allocate earnings toward that. We don't have enough earnings to cover everything we want everything we, and everything we think we want. And pretty soon we're in debt. We're going the wrong way around the wheel. We'll talk about that in a minute. I have a friend who once a year spends a week at a monastery. Don't ask me why. He's a weird guy, all right? This past year, he spent a month at the monastery. Oh, yeah, and here's one rule. You can't talk at the monastery. Can't talk. No TV, no radio, no cell phone, nothing. I'd commit suicide the first hour, I'm thinking, right? (laughs) This guy went for a month. Well, anyway, when he came out, it was kind of like prison. When he came out... He told me about another monastery. Here's the other monastery. Very, and they're all very Spartan, right? Kind of your beds are hard, not no no electronic um, distractions, nothing. It's just you. And when you enter the other monastery, the uh, attendant says, "Now listen." Takes you to your room, kind of like the bellboy, right? She you room. Said, "Now listen. If you need anything during your stay here, you just let me know, and I'll tell you how to live without it." <laughs> That's good, right? What, whatever you think you need, you let me know what you need, and I'll tell you how to live without it. That's what we have to learn when it comes to dealing with debt. We need to say, well, what? what do we want? Yeah, we may want it, but we don't need it, and we need to figure out how we can get rid of the debt. I'll let you in know a little secret. How are you going to get rid of debt? The same way you earned it, one purchase at a time. It's not going to happen quickly unless somebody with a lot of money dies and gives it to you, and that's probably not going to happen. So you're going to get rid of the debt the same way you got it, one at a time. Well, let's move on. They all hang together. You need to save, strategic. save strategically. 70% of Americans, according to Wall Street Journal, 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. I don't mean to make you feel guilty, but that means a fair percentage, a fair number of people in this room live paycheck to paycheck. Now, look, I understand poverty. I understand being impoverished. There are systemic causes, and it's very complex. I understand all that. But also understand this. 70% of the population shouldn't be living paycheck to paycheck. Then you get some fanatical people like Dave Ramsey coming along, right, and if you're Dave Ramsey fans, and Dave says, whatever you do, whatever you do, you have to scrimp and save. You need to get $1,000 in an emergency account immediately. And then he says this. And if that means you don't eat, don't eat. You need $1,000 in an emergency account. Why does he say that? He says it because he knows Things happen, right? Stuff happens in life. And before you know it, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, something's going to go wrong with the car that didn't quite fit into the paycheck. You're going to need a roof on your home. Something happens with rent. Somebody needs money. Something breaks and if you're living paycheck to paycheck, I know you haven't taken into account those anomalies that show up. And what do you do? You're now having to take out credit. You're going in debt to pay for something that came up. So Ramsey fanatically says, you need $1,000 in emergency account. And then he says, once you get your $1,000 in emergency account, then you need to get three months in emergency account. And that means cut out some meals. Some of you can use, could use missing a few meals. Now, look, I'm not telling you all that. Here's what I'm saying, though. We need to save strategically. Here's how Proverbs says it. The wise store up choice food and olive oil. Remember, an agrarian culture. What does this verse say? Through hard work, discipline, and good stewardship, smart people save. Stupid people suck down whatever they bring in. That's what it says. And then some. Smart people save. Most Americans don't have hardly any savings. 70% live paycheck to paycheck. We're not following biblically sound financial wisdom. Sometimes people say this, but Charles, you don't understand. My living expenses eat up all my earnings. You ever feel like that? My my living expenses eat up all my earnings. To which I I would say, well, you need to scale back your living expenses. How do we often determine our living expenses? By saying, how do I want to live? What's my ideal life? What kind of house do I want? Where do I want it to be? What kind of car do I want to drive? What year do I want it to be? What do I want the accessories to be? What kind of clothes do I want to wear? What restaurants do I want to go to? We answer all of those lifestyle questions first. Then we allocate our earnings. We're going the wrong way around the wheel. You see, to understand saving strategically, it's really kind of like roulette, roulette. I didn't say go to the casino, put your money on the roulette wheel. That's how you live financially. Why? I didn't say that. But a roulette wheel will help us, all right? If you look at the roulette wheel, you notice you have earnings in the middle. That's the stuff you bring in. That's the stuff from your fields, right? That's called income. Around the outside of the roulette wheel, those are your expenses. At the top, 12 o'clock, you see God. We'll talk about that expenditure in a minute. At 3 o'clock, you see debt reduction. We just talked about that. At 6 o'clock, you see save strategically. That's what we're talking about now. And at 9 o'clock, it says, living, what's it say? Living expenses. Now, here's what we often do. We first say, here's my ideal lifestyle. Here's how I want to live. Then we say, okay, here's what it's going to take for me to live that way. I don't have enough earnings to live that way. I've got to borrow money to live the way I want. That's wrong. You're going the wrong way around the wheel. We start by allocating earnings to lifestyle. Then we go counterclockwise around the wheel. No, 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 no earnings need to go clockwise around the wheel. You first take in earnings. You say, what is God requiring based on who God is and what he's given me and my good stewardship on my final exam? What should I be giving to God? What should I be doing about debt reduction? What should I be saving? Then after you've done all of that, you say, now with what's left, how should I live? That's how you run around the roulette wheel. That almost sounds un-American, doesn't it? What are you you talking about, Charles, right? Didn't you remember the cheer? What do we want more when we want it now? Yeah, and I can guarantee you, if you go from earnings to your ideal lifestyle, you will save very little, you'll probably have debt, and you'll give God a little tip of leftovers at the end and feel good about yourself for doing it. Oh, yeah, you probably won't do real well in the final either. Look, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying the Bible has a lot to say about money. And what the Bible has to say about it is pretty sound wisdom. Earnings, God graciously gives them to us. Allocate them according to the principles He gives and make sure you go clockwise, not counterclockwise, around the wheel. Our lifestyle, our living expenses, should be the fudge factor, not the other items on the wheel. Don't determine your ideal lifestyle. Say, realistically speaking, what are my fields producing? Where, where do I need to allocate these other things priority-wise? And then what's left, live on that. You know, a lot less pressure that way. And you probably won't be freaked out staying up at night a lot either. So we need to save strategically. Well, lastly, we need to give generously. Give generously. Here's how Proverbs says it. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Here's how it works. Honor God with the first fruits. Now, what are the first fruits? They're the fruits that come first, right? First, they come first, which means, right, think of the field again, right? Take care of your outside work first, your fields. Then so what what do what do your fields produce first? Make sure you give to God out of what the fields are producing. That's income, right? Give to God first. Now, here's what that requires. That requires you recognizing all that you have is a gift from God, and it also requires faith and trust in God because you don't know if the rest of the harvest is coming in, right? When you give to God off the top, you're saying, God, you were faithful, and my crop, my fields are producing. That's amazing. Thank you, Lord. But you're not quite sure the rest of the harvest is coming in. You trust God to take care of the rest of the harvest. Every time you and I cash a paycheck, every time it gets deposited in our bank account, any time we get earnings, we should do two things. Thank God for graciously providing and demonstrating his faithfulness once again to us. And act in faith and trusting him as we expend that money. That's how it works. Give to God the first fruits. I did a little word study. Actually, I read it somewhere else, but uh, I'm still thinking about it. It's kind of ticking me off. Think of some of the really important biblical words right, that the Bible has. right? Things like faith and pray and love, words like that. Um, You can't tell everything by how many times a word is used in the Bible, but you can tell some things. Check this out. The word belief or faith, same word, right? Belief and faith, same word. That's used 272 times in the Bible. That's a lot, right? 272 times the word faith and belief. The word pray is used 371 times. Pray, faith, love, right? The word love is used 741 times. Love is used like twice as much as pray. If you're fearing not and have low anxiety, you'll be a giver. Giving is kind of the symptom underneath all of those other marks of maturity and vital signs, right? I can prove it to you. Here's a familiar verse, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave. There it is. God loves, God gave. What did he give? He gave us his one and only son. That people like you and me, as sinful, separated, and alienated from God and other people as we are, if we put our faith in him, then the gift of Jesus covers all of our transgressions, reconciles us to God, to ourselves, to other people, and to the world. And it all came because God gave. Giving's pretty important to God, don't you think? So I'll tell it to you like this. You and I will never be givers if we gaze at our ideal lifestyle, that'll never happen. Because you want to know something? We live in a more now world, right? What do we want? More. When do we don't want it now. As l- if you look at your ideal, your ideal lifestyle just keep growing, growing, growing. You'll never be a giver if you gaze at your ideal lifestyle. You'll never be a giver if you gaze at your savings, right? If you think you find your security in your savings, you'll never have enough in your savings. You'll never be a giver if you look at all the things that you want and all the things you think you need but don't have. I'll tell you how you be a giver. You gaze at God's gift for you, Jesus Christ. You gaze at the price God paid to reconcile you and me to Him to forgive us and restore us forever. If you gaze at God's giving and God's gift, you will be a giver, and so will I. So maybe the symptomatic vital sign underneath a whole lot of other vital signs that we've talked about, maybe the symptomatic vital sign under all of them is the symptom of giving. If you're gazing at God's gift to you in the gospel, if you're gazing at God's wisdom and love and sacrifice for you, you'll recognize that God has filled you to overflowing and given me and you more than we deserve, and we will perpetuate that, and and that theme will become true in our lives. And then what Paul says will be true of us. Here's here's how Paul says it. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. You know, I'm not here this morning to tell you, you need to give, and you need to give more than you're giving. Our budget in 2017 is bigger than the 16th. That's true, but I'm I'm not here to put the screws on you, make you feel guilty. I'm here to say just what God says. You know what? Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion. Don't give feeling guilty. God loves a cheerful giver. Just make sure you're gazing at God's gift of Jesus to you when you calculate your giving and you do your giving. I've got something practical for us to think about. I mentioned during our really long annual meeting a few minutes ago, I mentioned that above and beyond our 2016 budget, we raised more than $800,000 in addition to our budget for the launch of Quakertown. I didn't mention we're about $300,000 short of the goal, but that goal was for the year. And so I really mean it when I say, you guys shocked me. I mean, I never thought we would be well into paying off that $1.2 million by now. I thought we were going to kind of eke it out maybe by fall. But over $800,000 came in for the launch. We've only got like $300,000 left. Now Three hundred dollars is a big chunk of change, right? I mean, if you want to give a check, we'll take it. But, um, but that's still a big chunk. Here's what um, I talked to the financial management team about and to the elders about. So I'm going to talk to you about. I think we should covenant together, work together to pay off the Quaker Town site by Easter. What do you say? A few weeks out, right? After all, Lent is a season when we recognize Jesus' sacrifice for us. So maybe Lent for us this year be a little season where we make a couple sacrifices. We pay that off. So we're not trying to make general fund by the end of 2017 plus pay off the site. Let's get the site paid for. Now, don't take your general fund giving and move it to the site. That's not helping us. But let's come into how to. Now, with all of my math skills, I figured this out. We had to purchase, there's a picture of the Quakertown, it looks kind of like our room, right? There's the Quakertown site, the auditorium, excuse me, the cafetorium, <laughs> that's what that is. Um, we had to purchase, we purchased for the Quakertown site 300 chairs. We owe about $300,000. $300,000 divided by three, that's $1,000 a chair. See, how I did that. I did that. Now, the chairs did not cost us $1,000 a pop, all right? But here's what I thought we would do. How about if we work together to buy a chair? Maybe some of you individually can you buy a chair, write a check for $1,000, put it on, put on the little memo thing at a check, chair, and turn it at the hub or, you know, put it in with the offering, whatever. Um, and some of you are probably saying, $1,000, Charles, you told me Dave Ramsey wants a $1,000, I, I can't go doing it. On. Fine, fine, fine. Find some friends and together buy a chair, right? Stand in the atrium with a little sign. Hey, I want to buy a chair. I want to buy a chair, but I need 10 people to help me, right? Then come together. You figure out how you want to do it. Maybe you're in a small group. Have your small group buy a chair. Maybe you're in an ABF. Maybe your ABF should buy five chairs or 10 chairs. Maybe you get a windfall in the next few weeks. You buy 10 chairs yourself. Maybe you buy all 300. I don't know. But, But here's the thing, and I mean this in all seriousness. I don't want just your check. So if you come up to me and give me a check for $1,000 or $10,000 or even $300,000 here it is, I'm done with this, I'll hand it back to her, I'll rip it up in front of you. I don't want just your check. Here's what I want. I want you to buy a chair, either individually, as a married couple, as a family, as an extended family, as a small group, as an ABF, as just a group of people, right, to go together to buy a chair. And I don't want you to buy a chair, but I want you to commit to pray for the people that will sit in that chair every week for this next year. If you give me a check and you're not going to pray, we don't want your check. Oh, yeah, and by the way, since we're sending over 300 people to Quakertown, there are some empty chairs in this room, too. These chairs are already paid for. You can pay for a Quakertown chair and pray for the empty chairs in this room, too. Not that we care primarily about getting butts in a seat. We care about lives being transformed, people connected in community, and in living in mission with Jesus. That's what we care about. And bodies in chairs represent the difference that the gospel can make in someone's life. So what do you think? Between now and Easter, can we work together individually as families, extended families, small groups, a network of friends, an ABF, just a group of people, can we work together to pay off $300,000, by paying $1,000 for 300 chairs, we get it paid for. And by the way, we pray for the people that will sit in those chairs, two services every week for a year, and we pray for the people here too. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are a gracious and giving God. Lord, we stand with all of our needs met and and our wants incredibly met beyond our ability to even understand. Thank you for graciously giving to us. We confess, Lord, that we have wants lists that are really, really long. And we confess that sometimes we allow our wants to get us off track in how we manage our money. But Lord, I pray that you would help our money. And the wise stewardship of our resources to be a symptom of how we're stewarding our lives, our schedules, our energies, our gifts, our talents, and our money. And Lord, you help us to always have the right attitude. We give because you first gave to us. Even though we don't deserve, you give beyond our ability to ever merit. And out of that receiving, May we be generous givers to others and to what Jesus is doing in this world. Thanks for all the exciting things that you allow us to see at Calvary Church. Help us not to take them for granted. And help us as a church to be good stewards of the resources that you give to us as we together live in mission with Christ, a community called Calvary Church in two locations, living out the mission that Jesus put us on. We pray in his name. Amen.